Okay, tonight we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 20, and we're picking it up with really the focus tonight is King Ahab, the king in the north. Now remember, we went through these northern kings. After Solomon stepped into eternity, there are six kings in the north that get us to Ahab, and his dad, Omri, was the worst of all. He's very evil. And now we have the son Ahab, who married Jezebel, the Sidonian woman from modern Lebanon. And she's a princess, and she's evil, and she brought in the false worship of Baal. They made him lord over Israel, the people of covenant, God's people in the Old Testament. And then, so we have this clash of who's really lord in Israel over the ten tribes of the north. Remember, there's the southern tribes. Judah kind of absorbed Benjamin, and they're down there in the south with some Levites, and Israel's divided in two halves for hundreds of years, and we're just flowing right through that. So the book of Kings focuses on the kings in the north, the kings of Israel, which makes Ahab our focus. He gets a lot of attention in the scriptures. He's got quite a few chapters where he's involved, and so tonight he is front and center for all of us to learn from his life the lessons of God's grace extended toward him, his own folly as a king and the consequences of that folly, but the faithfulness of God. And so we pick it up in chapter 20, verse 1, where the standoff has already happened with Ahab and Elijah, the fire from heaven against the prophets of Baal. All that's already happened. Jezebel wants to kill Elijah, and that's where we left off, and things are in motion, where Ahab's the king, Elijah is the prophet at large, the fugitive, if you will, and life goes on. Verse 1, now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all of his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. So now Syria is coming from the north, and they're going to wage war against the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel in the north, against Ahab and Jezebel and the kingdom there. Then he sent messengers, verse 2, into the city to Ahab, the king of Israel. And he said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I've sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it to their hands and take it. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, my gold, and I did not deny him. And then all the elders of all the people said to him, Now, do not listen or consent. In other words, they're like, No, we're not going for that. We might be, you know, the lesser of the two powers, but that's just, that's unacceptable. And it would be. Verse 9, Therefore he said to the messenger of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for your servant the first time I will do, but this, this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word. Then Ben-Hadad sent him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like one who takes it all off, who takes it off. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message that he and his kings were drinking at the command post. And he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. And suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
And Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, and who will set the battle in order? And he said, that is a prophet, you will. Ahab will set it in order. Then he mustered the young leaders of the province, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, told of Israel, 7,000. And so they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. And the young leaders of the province went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, Men are coming out of Samaria. And so he said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and the chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Assyria will come up against you. This is the first of a couple of deliverances that Ahab gets here. It's fascinating because he's an evil king, but he's kind of neutral. You know, like we've already seen with Ahab, it seems like, well, we'll be told later on that Jezebel stirs him up for evil. He's the king of Israel, and he was entitled because his dad was extremely powerful and influential, and he received this inheritance and this power, and he has his opportunity, like every other king before him in Israel, under covenant, are we going to serve the Lord? Are his commandments going to guide and govern us? Is his law going to guide and govern us? And are we going to be blessed because we obeyed the Lord? Or are we just going to go our own way, think that we got it all figured out, and mix the worship of Jehovah with Baal or whatever, which never works because light and darkness don't go together. And it's just what we're going to do. So he had his chances. But even when Elijah said, I hear the rain, I see the cloud before he saw it, that was our, it was a pretty major part of our study the last couple of services, that even when that happened, we see that Elijah told him, go down from Mount Carmel and go to Jezreel and get out of here before it rains. And like, so Ahab, like he saw the hand of God. He saw the power of God. He saw the fire come down from heaven. He saw Elijah strike down the prophets of Baal. Then he'd go home and tell Jezebel what happened. And Jezebel's like, oh, if I find him, the next, next, he's going to be dead in a day. So the wrath of his wife was unveiled to him. But we don't really see like Ahab say like he's all for Jehovah or all for Ahab. Or, excuse me, all for um, Baal. So Ahab just, even with all that happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, it's like Ahab's just sort of like, well, you know, it could be this, it could be that. Like he doesn't really, he's not adamant for Baal, but he's not adamant for Jehovah. He's just, he's a king of Israel under covenant, and he just, I don't know, he seems like a coward, actually, to be honest. But God's trying to get his attention. So here we see the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God. In fact, being a king of Israel not believing in God is like being a liberal pastor. That's what it's like. Who wants to get in the pulpit and not believe the Bible? Do you know how much confidence I have when I get up here every service to teach the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? I have all the confidence in the universe because I believe every jot and tittle. And I'm not afraid of what men can do to me. I prefer they do good things as opposed to bad things, but I know I speak the truth. There's three realities, their opinion, my opinion, and the truth. So the more I align my heart with the truth, the better for me. So Ahab is, when you have a king like this where he's under covenant, and he's supposed to represent God, but doesn't really believe the word of God. It's just like a liberal pastor that doesn't believe the whole counsel of God. Which, by the way, is pretty much 9 out of 10 pastors in America, unfortunately. Because they're poisoned by the seminaries. It's sad. And I'm not going to be like Elijah, say, like, I'm the only one or 7,000. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if you 
push comes to shove, nine out of 10 pastors would deny the authority of scripture over all things in the human experience. That's a fact. You see, you know, the word is impotent. That's the right word to describe Ahab. You know, you could have all this power, you could have all this obedience, you could have all this good fruit, you could have peace and prosperity and protection. Instead, you're just like lukewarm and Jesus vomits you, Revelation says of that person. And yet, look at God's faithfulness. It's like when people go to churches that don't believe the Bible and some mixed up version of truth comes out, but some truth is in that element. People hear it and believe it and God honors that. God will honor that for the people. So regardless of the strangeness that some churches might have, any measure of truth that goes forth and someone hears it, God can honor that and use that because God is faithful to his person and to his word. So the best thing we can do is align our hearts completely from Genesis to Revelation and the whole counsel of God. But God is faithful to his church. And you see in the book of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia that describe different types of churches, Jesus is still walking in their midst and he's faithful in that situation. That's why, although it's a reality that nine out of ten pastors in America do not believe the Bible, it's also a reality that Jesus Christ is working in ways that we don't even know in most churches. And that's why we want to be slow to, well, I'm not in a hurry to pick up any stones. And I hope you aren't either. Let God be true and every man a liar, and it'll play out. So here we see this Ahab, who should have all this authority, but he doesn't believe it, and he doesn't live it, and he's kind of neutral, but there is no neutrality. It's light and darkness. There's no ambiguity. It's one or the other, and he's neither, which means you're the other. But God is still faithful. He gives his people deliverance because he's faithful. We're told in Timothy, when we're faithless, he remains faithful. And here we see his faithfulness. He's given Ahab a total victory that he doesn't deserve. There's nothing in Ahab's life, his words, his actions, his morning devotion time, how he treats people. There is nothing that would bring God's favor upon his life other than the fact he's a king of the people of covenant in the Old Testament. And God's going to be faithful to his people, even if the shepherd, in this case the king, is not. But this phrase in verse 22 is very interesting. Go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do, for they're coming back. This gets me thinking how God does this in so many people's lives who, are not, who do not belong to him. They're unsaved, or they've walked away from the Lord, and they, they're facing a, a crisis moment in their life, something so profound, like, you know, you got cancer, you got expelled from college or whatever. It's a, just a crisis moment, like a near-death experience, and it's like, what are you going to do? Max Lucado had a book he wrote years ago, and one of the chapters was a little bit of hanging. And it means like you almost got hung, but you didn't. You were headed for the gallows, and somehow you dodged it like that. I'm going to be, I've been working on a book, and I'm going to be doing work on, it, work on it quite a bit more in the future. And as I've been thinking about things in my life, I've thought about how many times we had, I had these experiences when your whole world just gets rocked like that and you don't serve or live for the Lord, which, and it's like the, the Lord would say to us, go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. See, some people get a deliverance from the Lord. They get a get-out-of-jail card in life, and they just walk away from the Lord, and they don't turn to the Lord. But people that are wise, when they get delivered, they'll turn to the Lord. I was thinking about this just the other day in great detail. The year after I made the Pipe Masters final when I was 17 with Jerry Lopez, my brother grew cannabis. 
when it was very illegal. And he was really good at it. And he grew a lot of it in Carlsbad. And there was a situation where we were tipped off that these gangsters from Oceanside were going to come rip off my brother and his stash. And it was early October. And if you know anything about cannabis, you need the last few weeks to make it worth, instead of 50 bucks an ounce, $200 an ounce in the 80s. 79, actually. It was 1979. But my brother got tipped off. So my brother and some friends and myself, we stayed up all night protecting my, de- my brother's backyard, like a half acre of cannabis in Carlsbad. And uh, nobody came. We all fell asleep because we were up all night. And at 10 in the morning, strangers walked right through his front door with loaded weapons and stole everything. But the profound thing about that is I had a guy walk up to me and point a gun right at my head and said, I know you're Joey Brand. Get down on the ground. And he put a gun in my face and then to the back of my head when they stole all my brother's stuff. The next night, we were going to a dance at Palomar Junior College out there in San Marcos. And we're all kind of tanked up, and we're driving, and we're all in this vehicle together. It's about 8 at night on a Friday night. It's two nights later. We get this road rage thing going, and we get off there past Vista, but before San Marcos, we get off this exit. The guy's waving us off. We're like, come on, let's do this. And we pull over off the freeway, and we get off to the right. This guy pulled over the overpass, stopped, and me and my friend, Mickey Yarbrough, and others were all running toward the car to just... It's the stupidest thing you can do is go pick a fight. You would never do something like this, so please don't ever do anything like this. But we did this, and I was leading the way, but Mickey got there before me, and the first thing that happened was the guy put a dagger right in his gut. Right, right in front of my eyes, I got there, and Mickey had just been stabbed right here, pulled out, and he just dropped in a pool of blood right in front of me. The guy got in his car and drove away. We got Mickey in the car. We turned around, went right back to uh, Tri-City Hospital there in Oceanside, and they saved his life. They took out his spleen and some other things, and he's never really been the same physically. That happened in less than 48 hours, those two events. And what I remember most about it is after Mickey got stabbed, you know, the party's over when someone gets stabbed like that. And we went back to Carlsbad, and I remember I went down to Tamarack Beach that night in the middle of the night where my whole world was, Tamarack Beach in Carlsbad. And I went down there, and I was on the beach in the dark by myself at 2 in the morning. And I was thinking. I was thinking like this and that. And I I had to decide at the age of 18, because I was 18, is this the life I want to live? And the answer was no. And it's like the Lord intervened in that 48-hour period. It's like, hey, go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. Because you had a gun pointed at your head, and your friend was stabbed in the stomach right in front of you in less than 48 hours together. And I praise the Lord that he protected me, that I didn't get shot and killed, because somebody, when people point a gun at you, they're usually willing to use a gun. That he spared my life. That wasn't the only time. And then that Mickey outran me the last 30 yards to get to that truck, and it was Mickey who lost his spleen and was stabbed in the gut, not me. By the way, parenthetical thought on this story, when I knew it was time to serve the Lord in 1987, I went to North Coast Calvary Chapel there off in Encinitas. My sister was supposed to meet me there. I was so nervous to go to church by myself. She got in a car accident, a fender bender on the way down on the five between Carlsbad and Encinitas. So I sat in the parking lot there at Vulcan Square in Encinitas saying, can I go into church right now? I'm so nervous. And I thought, if I don't go in right now, I'm probably never going to church. 
I walked in there and Nikki Yarbrough, who was stabbed instead of me, eight years before, was in the front row saying, Joey, come on. And he called me to the front row. That's when I went from back row Joe to front row Joe. Isn't that an amazing link of the story of me and Mickey Yarbrough? He just emailed me a few weeks ago for prayer. I did the last rites for his mom last December in a, a hospice home. Ah, oh, but those two days, those 48 hours. This is a reminder to us when profound things happen in our life. And you hear the swoosh of eternity. And the Lord says to you and I, whether we get let go from a job or we're all in with something. I mean, just you know, you know. That defining moment when God's grace and mercy protected you from a great evil. And it's not so we walk away saying, man, I won the lottery. But we press in and say, man, the Lord's got my back. And I need to get closer to the Lord than I've ever been before. That's what this means. See, for Ahab, he dodged the knife in the gut. He dodged the gun to the head. God, God gave him victory against all astronomical numbers against him. And it's supposed to humble him and draw him closer to the Lord to be who he's meant to be in the Lord. And what's true for Ahab is true for Joey Brand. It's true for everyone that reads the Bible, for all of us in the church of Jesus Christ. There are things in our life, and may God help you know when you're facing him, when he's delivered you, maybe from a bad relationship. We've been involved in people being delivered from stalkers, very serious, dangerous people. And the word of the Lord be, go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. Say, serious text with a serious application. And unfortunately for Ahab, he missed it. So just make sure we don't. Verse 23. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are our gods of the hills. He said, the king of Syria said, their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they are stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you've lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Man, evil just always reloads, doesn't it? Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the, Sir, while the Syrians filled the countryside. Then the man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel. Here he comes again. You know, you got a prophet, a prophet, and a man of God. Said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was on the seventh day that the battle was joined. The children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day, but the rest fled to Aphek into the city. Then a wall fell on the 27,000 of the men who were there. And probably an earthquake or something. Then Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. Then his servants said to him, Look now, we've heard the kings of the house of Israel, merciful kings. Please let us put on sackcloth around our waist, ropes around our heads, and go up to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they, they were surrounded. They had no chance. They're surrendering. So they wore sackcloth around their waist, put the ropes around their heads, and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he, that is Ahab, said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. 
Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had come up in the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may set up a marketplace for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets, here's another one of these guys, says to, to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Like a mountain lion. It's kind of like the story we read a few chapters ago. It's like, man, it's a dark time, and God's working through the prophets and supernatural things. He's like, man, I'll tell you, if a prophet tells you to hit him, bop him. Yeah, it's in your own best interest. Whatever the prophet tells you to do, do it, man. Because he's speaking edification, exhortation, and comfort. Whatever he says, crack him. Verse 37. So he went out and he found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him and inflicted a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king, that is Ahab, by the road, and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if by any means you shall pay silver a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel, Ahab, said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he that is the man of God, hastened to take the bandage away from his eye, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you've let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life will go for his life, your people for his people. So the king of Israel went away to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Story is all connected because the actions of the two deliverances carry over into the impact how the follow-up was, the closing of the deal, all that, it all plays out to the latter part of this chapter. So the Lord said to him, you shall know, back in verse 28, you shall know that I am the Lord. And he said the same thing to him back in chapter verse 13. So twice the Lord said, I'm going to give you deliverance twice, both times, and you will know that I am the Lord. And he told him, think about it before the king comes back again. God held Ahab accountable to make the right actions, the right decisions, and do the right thing from these two victories, and he did not. The irony of ironies, lest I forget, is later on tonight, Ahab's going to call Elijah his enemy. Have you found me, O my enemy? And isn't that ironic? Because he calls Ben-Hadad his brother. It's all wrong. You're calling your enemy your brother and your brother your enemy. But that's what happens when you're not walking with the Lord. Good becomes evil and evil becomes good. And you call light darkness and you call darkness light. That is what happens. Choose this day whom you'll serve. That's what Elijah said when he called on the fire. If the Lord is Lord, serve him. And if Baal's Lord, serve him. Whoever calls down fire, serve him. But Ahab wouldn't do that. Which brings up a good point. God says, this is the Lord. Isn't it funny when you're fighting against the Lord? Sometimes we know people like this where they're fighting against the Lord and God sends them a word, sends them a prophet, sends them a man of God, a woman of God, an oracle, this thing they hear on the radio, this thing they see on a clipping or whatever. When God's got your number and he's coming for you, the best thing we can do is respond to it. 
God is so personal in Ahab's life right now to get his attention, to move him toward obedience and the right things. In fact, we could say he's doing more for Ahab than we really see him do for any other kings in the north. God's trying to woo and win Ahab to be a good king. But Ahab is just, oh, his heart is determined to do evil. But God said to him and held him accountable for this. God held him accountable as he holds us all accountable for different things that he's, from his word and maybe things he's put on our heart to do. He said, you've let slip out of your hand a man I appointed for utter destruction, verse 42. See, there are things appointed for other destruction in our life. And as much as we want to get along with everything as best as we possibly can, light and darkness cannot coexist. See, in 1 John chapter 2, it says that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these are the things of the devil and the things of the world. And the Bible goes on to say there in 1 John that whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we can't pursue the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life and think that God's going to bless that. Those things are opposed to the kingdom. When Adam fell in sin, he fell in those three categories. When Jesus was victorious over sin with the devil, he triumphed in those three categories. So 1 John warns us, those things will always destroy us. Or one of my favorite all-time Pastor Chuck Smith quotes, the flesh is never satisfied. Our sinful flesh, you can never make a treaty with our flesh any more than Ahab should be making a treaty with Ben-Hadad. You just can't make a treaty with that which will destroy you. Our flesh wants to reign over the spirit. The devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil are the antichrist trivent to destroy us. It's a triune alliance to destroy us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And then the threefold temptations to our flesh. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh. And we can never have peace with it. We can't have peace with the devil and the principalities of powers in the heavenly places. We... We're in a war. It's a spiritual battle. It's for our soul. The stakes are high. That's why Paul says at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. Our walk with the Lord is a good fight. Our purity is a good fight. Our marriage is a good fight. Our children, our children's children, the influence of salt and light wherever we go, how we live in our neighborhood, how we live in our state, our community, our country, how we carry ourselves for the kingdom, it's the good fight. The integrity and the conviction of truth in our hearts. And when God says something's appointed to destruction, we need to let him destroy it. And I, if we don't know what he wants to destroy, let me say this before we move on to the next chapter. He wants to destroy our pride and our flesh. Because the two things that work against his kingdom in our life is my pride and my flesh. But where I have humility and more of the spirit, it's better for me when I look in the mirror. It's better for my wife when I say good morning. It's better for my neighbors when I walk out the door. It's better for you and me when we get in the car and drive to work. It's better for everybody when you come to church, when you go to the family gathering at Thanksgiving. It's just better. The world is a better place when the disciples of Jesus Christ say yes to humility and yes to the Spirit. And they put to death pride and the flesh. And when you think you've put to death pride and the flesh, the Lord allows something to happen in your life where you can just see Oh, my pride in my flesh. It's always there. Galatians 5 says the spirit and the flesh, they war against each other. Mm. So whatever we sow to, that's what we're going to produce. So sow humility, produce life, or sow pride in the flesh and produce death. We want life. Ben-Hadad is like 
Making a peace treaty with Ben-Hadad is like make, shaking hands with your flesh and your pride saying, let's, let's coexist. Let's work together on this Christian walk. That will never work. What God says to utterly destroy, it must be destroyed. And for us, really, in the Christian walk, the problem isn't the person outside the doors. The problem is the person I see in the mirror. And if I let God work utterly destroy in that person in the mirror the things that need to be destroyed, it is so much better for planet Earth, as it is for me, as it is for all disciples of Jesus Christ. Because there's people that just live according to their pride, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, so we offset that, and we're salt and light, and we bring life where there's death. That's who we are. We're the church of Jesus Christ. Chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. He's his neighbor, and he owns the land. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house. And uh, for it, I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will, will cash it out. I'll give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord, that's the first word he says there, just note that, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. See, the inheritance of everything that um, Naboth owned, God gave it to him 400 years prior when Joshua divided the land. And the land was subdivided by the tribes and subdivided by the families. And this is an inheritance from God for Naboth. This is his vineyard. And he's faithful with it. It's, It's obviously appealing because... The king wants to take it from him because the king's a taker, not a giver. And he's like, hey, I'll give you another piece of land. You know, whenever a government wants to relocate you, it's probably a bad idea, right? Ask the Indians. It doesn't work out so well when government relocation never works out too well. Or if they want to cash out your cow when you still want to milk your cow. Like, what if you say, I got a cow, I want to milk my cow. And the government says, no, we're going to kill the cow or get you a different cow. But you can't keep this cow. That's what it's like. But what are you going to do? But one thing we know in this story is that land was inheritance of his father's, which means it's the land that God gave him. It's what God gave him. And it's going to be taken from him. This is one of my least favorite chapters in the Bible, and I'll tell you why in a moment, but let's just read the story. Verse 4. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and he turned away his face, and would eat, eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I have spoken to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food. Let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the, the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters to Ahab in Ahab's name, sealed them with a seal, sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. And seat two men, scoundrels. So make sure they're low-life liars, basically. Before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have, you have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles, just corrupt politicians, that's what they are, who were inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as was written in the letters which she had sent, the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth with high honor among the people, and two men, scoundrels, came in, sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, 
Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the sea, stoned him with stones, so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. See, like she makes good look evil, and she's evil, and she tries to make herself look good. That's what they do. They still do it. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, because he's a man of no character or conviction or integrity. He got up, went down, and he, to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Okay, here comes Elijah again. You know, like, here we go. This is not the man of God or a man of God or prophet. This is Elijah. You murder someone instantly, God's sending you Elijah. God says, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. You're going, he's going right to, it's a road game. He's going right to his house, to the place of the crime. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, you have murdered and also taken possession. Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Verse 20, So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? What a confused man. And he, and he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, your offspring. I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Asja, because of the provocation with which you've provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel's wife stirred him up and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his body, fasted and laid in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his sons, I will bring the calamity on his house. So, of course, I don't like this story at all because it's injustice. I don't like death under any circumstance. And I don't like injustice under any circumstance. And we say it all the time, in eternity there will be perfect justice. Just know that for sure. There's always perfect justice in eternity. But there's so much injustice on planet Earth in every generation. And it's, you know, it's really the place of political leaders, if they're godly, they're, they're leaders and they seek the Lord, is to try and bring justice to injustice. That's what a good politician leader should do, male or female. To, to, it's a good reign. There's justice. There's, when the righteous reign, it's good for the city. But when the evil in power, it's bad for everybody. But rare are the kings and queens who bring good justice. But it's a beautiful thing to stand for justice, to stick up for justice, and to represent justice because it's such an injustice. Jezebel is so crafty. She gets, because in the Bible it's two or more witnesses, so she, all you need is two liars. So she just gets two liars. Name your price. How much you need to pay the scoundrels to lie? 
they don't care. They're going to do whatever they're going to do to keep their lives or to make money. And it's just, you'd like to think humanity is not like this, but we do know, alas, it is very much like this. And that's the sadness of it. And even though there's perfect justice, so Naboth steps into eternity. He dies his death with people accusing him falsely, and he gives up his life. Just that scene in a movie is a sad scene. It's a difficult scene to even picture in my mind. God's his avenger in eternity. The justice for what was done to him takes place after he's left his dimension. Like, he's gone. All of his family and relatives, they might still be there. He's gone. He doesn't get to see the justice. He doesn't get to see it. But even that justice of the death of Ahab and the death of Jezebel, it doesn't restore the vineyard. It doesn't restore his life. Like the, just to sit under, by, you know, the Bible and the prophets talk about a good time with the Lord. You know what it says? Every man eating under his vineyard with peaceably and a good life. Children playing in the streets, old men happy in the streets. The Bible says that in the prophets. When the Lord reigns, the old men are happy, the kids are playing in the streets, and you're sitting by your vineyard, and you're just enjoying a good day in Israel. Shalom, shalom. It's injustice. And the thing about, it's just, it is what it is. God will straighten out in eternity. You may never see justice for injustice in time, but absolutely in eternity we'll see it. We also note that uh, in this text, He's called a murder, so God brings about his crime and calls him for it, and the consequence. The crime, capital punishment. Cap is first-degree murder, capital punishment. And, but he says, you've sold yourself to do evil. I found you, because you've sold yourself to do evil, and you think, how many people sell themselves to do evil? The price tag for evil, the lying scoundrels, the corrupted king Jezebel, just we need to sell ourselves for righteousness. We need to be, see, people will sell out for something. We want to know when we're on our last day and we're facing the king that we have sold ourselves out completely for righteousness and what's true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and honorable with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Be sold out for righteousness, what's right. Stand for what's right. And if they're pelting with stones and taking your vineyard, do so with forgiveness in your heart, with mouth toward none, and know the king's coming for you and there's a glory. And I do suppose if you lose a vineyard because government takes it from you, falsely accuses you, and kills you, there's God's obviously a reward on the other side that supersedes that, that's eternal, and that's temporal anyways. Because the vineyard always gets left behind either way. Remember, he says, my inheritance from who? My fathers. Where are the fathers? They're gone. Who's going to get it? The kids. It's temporal. Righteous judgment is eternal. But he sold himself to do evil. We want to sold ourselves, sell ourselves for righteousness. And verse 25, it says that he was sold himself to do wickedness because his wife stirred him up. We have to be really careful that we don't let wicked people stir us up. We cannot let wicked people, wicked people stir us up. There's people that stir us up. There's people pushing our buttons. There's good people that will try and stir us up. There's so many hot buttons out there where people are just trying to push our buttons your buttons on planet Earth. And you just have to know, like, when you wake up, that you've been with the Lord, you spent time with the Lord, you're right with the Lord, and nobody's pushing your buttons. They're not pushing your buttons to put you in the flesh. They're not pushing your buttons to get you reactive to things that you have no control over or the wrong reaction for some things you do have control over. Like, we seek the Lord, we set our hearts for the Lord, and, and we... we we sell ourselves for righteousness and to obey the Lord. We know that this is the day the Lord has made. 
We know that we're giving up the day in our life of equity, so we want to make sure we're investing the day for eternity with future equity by choosing Christ, choosing his word, choosing obedience, choosing forgiveness, all the right things with the Lord. See, when you have a vision of the kingdom and you have a sense of your purpose in life and your, your goals, or the macro goals and the little goals that march toward those goals with your walk with the Lord, your family, your extended family, your pets, your finances, your neighbors, your job, your church, the world, you just, you, you, you got, you're on point. The best, off, the best defense is a great offense. And if you know who you are in Christ and you know where you're going on this day, then get about the Father's business and don't let people push your buttons and provoke you to evil and stir you up for the wrong thing. The Bible has so many warnings in the book of Proverbs about being stirred up by an angry man and becoming an angry man, about grabbing, jumping in someone's argument that's not you, and it's like getting in between two dogs fighting. See, Christ didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave for us to be reactive to people pushing our buttons. He's at the right hand of the Father, and sent the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost so we can be proactive for the right things and just keep on moving forward. Ahab did not have the backbone. He did not have the vision. He was reactive. He was sullen. He pouted. He never grew up. He never went out and got a job that no one wanted to do. He never had to be somewhere at a certain time and do a job that no one wanted to do. He never learned that if you talk back, you get fired. He never learned any of those things. He never learned the value of mowing lawns to buy his first surfboard. Like, he never learned those things. It was all entitlement. He received it all. And and so he never learned, like, you just can't have everything you want. When he threw a tantrum, it worked his whole life. Until he's condemned for murder, and then he's got capital punishment coming from Jehovah himself, God of the universe. See, We have to know and learn as we seek the Lord. We don't always get what we want. And we should be grateful for whatever the Lord gives us. He never grew up. He had no conviction. He had no character. He had no backbone. He had no fiber. He had no vision. And his buttons were pushed by people around him. He couldn't decide. But oh, Lord, it's Jehovah Lord. Uh, Honey, the prophet, he killed all the... Wow, kill him. You know, and why are you crying? Because he won't give me the vineyard. You see what I'm saying? Like... You would never, I know you're not these people, and it sounds like a negative, but the way you avoid this is just knowing that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh and everything's the Lord. And if we haven't learned yet to be on time, do the job and not give attitude, then we still need to learn it. Who knows? Maybe I'll be alive at 85 just to have a good attitude forever taking care of me, right? Right? Hey, don't underestimate your nurse in memory care and her hand in God's will in your life. For real. You You just never know. So learn the lessons of the failures of Ahab because the opposite of Ahab is to have just done the right thing in the first place, to have had firm beliefs and convictions that grounded you, to to think about it when the Lord gave you deliverance, to to know that he's the Lord, that you will know I am the Lord, you shall know that I'm the Lord. All God was trying to teach him in his 40, 50 years of life is I am the Lord, to look to the Lord. So most of you already figured that out. So we're way ahead of Ahab, right? And we just got to stay on point. But that last thing where the voice of the Lord saying, you sold yourself to wickedness and, and your wife stirs you up. We need to know who we believe in, what we believe, what we're standing for, the vision, the purpose, and not let 
hot buttons get us going in the wrong direction by people pushing them. Amen.